Hello, I'm Abhijit Shailanath and you're listening to The Correspondent, a platform for unbreaking news. Today I'll be reading a story by journalist Emily Dreyfus. During months of lockdown, social media was awash with pictures of one food group, baked goods. Sourdough loaves, naan bread and boiled bagels abound. Even non-bakers were giving in to the need to follow a recipe when all the rules of how we live were off the table. Bread, I've learned, can be cruel. It'll fill you up but leave you feeling empty. Bread hates us, my mother used to say growing up, by which she meant our bodies can't process it. It makes us fat. But it's all we want. Bread, she warned, didn't love us back. The historian Yuval Noah Harari goes so far as to blame all of civilization on a lie sold to us by wheat. In his book Sapiens, Harari explains that the agricultural revolution was one elaborate con in which human beings thought we were domesticating grains in order to set ourselves free but actually were consigning ourselves to a life of global drudgery that mostly benefited the wheat itself. We did not domesticate wheat, it domesticated us, he writes. It stopped us in our tracks, forcing us into a stationary society so we could tend to its whims. Its imperfect nutrition led to a population boom that changed our species and the planet and ushered in the globalization that defines us now. It forced us to give up the healthy, varied diet we'd enjoyed, which hurt our immune systems, while the labor to grow it broke our bodies. Harari argues, this is the essence of the agricultural revolution, the ability to keep more people alive under worse conditions. Wheat even brought us pestilence and plague, he writes. And so it is poetic and perfectly awful and maybe inevitable that right now, as civilization itself grinds to a halt in the face of a worldwide pandemic, that humanity would turn once again to the grain that made civilization possible. We seek nourishment and comfort. We seek routine and meaning and something we can count on. Today I have received three separate sets of unsolicited sourdough picks. What the hell is going on? The feminist writer Laurie Penny tweeted in early May. The answer was that bread and all baked goods have become a kind of ritualistic apotropaic plea made separately on all corners of the earth by humans sheltered in our homes fearing the same invisible danger and then shared collectively on the magical devices that we use to bridge our confinement. We cannot break bread together but bread photos are everywhere. The loaves are huge and tiny misshapen and perfect. They're crusty and blobby and braided and strange and every single one is some kind of incantation, a prayer to end uncertainty. In a way, that's what bread has always been, the slayer of doubt. Unlike berries you must gather and game you must hunt, bread is a sure thing. If you grow wheat and take the grain and grind it up and mix it with water and yeast and maybe some bacteria and so throw in some salt for flavor, you will get bread. It may not rise, it may not crunch, it may not even contain that much nutrition, but it will feed your family. Hell, you don't need the yeast. Just throw that flour in with some water and cook it and you have food. These are the thoughts that went through my head 
when the coronavirus pandemic brought food shortages to the US in March. And my job as the editorial director of a nascent technology publication was so busy and stressful that I felt I was drowning. My son was sent home from school indefinitely and my two cousins died of the virus, one after the other. And I just wanted to know one thing for certain, that I could feed my family. I fixated on flour. If I had flour, enough flour, then we'd eat, no matter what. No matter if we couldn't leave our homes. Water from the tap, flour, oven. That's something, right? That's matzah, at least. Which means leavened Jewish bread, the food of my people. But there was no flour to be found. The supply chains that society had developed to carefully ensure that my corner of San Francisco, California, on the westernmost side of the United States, always had just enough flour stocked on shelves, seemed to have completely broken down. I searched in three stores within a few miles of my house, not wanting to venture too far and violate the shelter-in-place orders in my city. No toilet paper, no eggs, no flour. Already, those with foresight and an earlier inkling of doom were parading their baked goods across Instagram, Twitter and Facebook, evidence that they could nourish themselves. My jealousy was boundless. They, the others, my friends and acquaintances, had flour. I had a baby and a four-year-old, and I had none. I thought, okay, forget consumer markets, go to the source, the wholesalers. But they were sold out. Okay, forget globalization, I realized, go smaller. You can only count on the local community at this moment. Does California even grow wheat? I wondered. I had no idea. But we grow everything else, so we must, right? In his book, Sapiens, Harari notes that wheat, thanks to our dotage, is one of the most successful plants in the history of the earth, covering 870,000 square miles. Miles that extend, it seems, into California, given the fact that a simple Google search brought up a handful of mills in the area. They too were sold out. It was the 24th of March. The Bay Area had been sheltering in place for only a week, And somehow it seemed the entire community, the whole nation even, had already bought all the flour. From the beginning of the crisis, bread was calling us. Finally, at the bottom of the Google results for local mills, I found an artisan flour provider that wasn't sold out. The only available sack was 50 pounds. Could I handle that size? Of course I could. As I waited days, I oscillated between shame, that was silly, 50 pounds, and fear, what if it never arrives? And the realization that if it did arrive, I would have to learn how to bake. Yes, I must admit, I have never baked. Before the pandemic, if you asked me a random fact about myself, I might say, I don't bake, I saute, I flambe, I roast, but I am not a recipe follower, I like to scan cookbooks and then go my own way. Yet when everything I knew about the world seemed no longer to be so sure, even this defining character trait went out the window. I craved not only bread, but the comfort of following instructions. When the bag arrived, it was 20 pounds heavier than my firstborn child. He helped me lug it into the kitchen, where it sat unopened for a week. A gaudy reminder of what began to feel like an extreme overreaction. That is, until neighbours and friends began stopping by to trade for cups of it. We got toilet paper, 
cookies, eggs, a pre-mixed glass jar of Negroni cocktails. When a colleague traded me a sourdough starter, I, like so many people I was seeing through my tiny window into the world through my phone, became totally ensnared by its demands. A sourdough starter needs constant attention. Like my family and our cats and my ego, it must be fed and warmed, nurtured and pruned. It has highs and lows. Sometimes it peaks in the middle of the night. It's potential mist. The starter had me in its grip, yet I still hadn't begun baking. Then, at the end of April, as I was settling into the routine of the pandemic, I lost my job. Along with a colleague who'd given me the starter and half of the team I'd built. And it was finally time to bake. As the days lost all shape, the baking of bread gave them back some contour. Split the starter in the evening so it's perfectly active in the morning. After you wake up and feed the children and tell your husband everything will be okay and make coffee, split some more to make a liver for your loaves. After you call the bank and ask if they'll let you pause your mortgage payments for a few months and apply for unemployment, and finally brush your teeth. The liver is ready and it's time to autolyze your flour, which just means mix it with water. Now you have time to lie down on the floor and have a panic attack. When that's over, grind some salt in a mortar and pestle like the Natufians who first domesticated wheat, really get your rage out, and then carefully sprinkle it over the dough. Then smooth your gooey liver that smells so sour over the top, and if you cry, that's fine, it's salt. Now mix it all together in your hands, your hands that every day until this day have typed words to pay for your life, have mixed bottles to feed your babies, have tickled your children, have caressed your love, have bloomed age spots even though weren't you just young a moment ago? Those are the hands you use. And when it's mixed, wait hours and hours until it triples in size. You have time to have a drink, catch up on emails, call a friend and ask if there's any news from their part of the world. And when it's risen, split it in two and shape it and put it in the fridge overnight. And in the morning, bake it in a domed pot in the hottest oven you can manage. And slather butter on it for your children. Eat yours standing up, listening to the jobs report on the radio. Millions out of work. In ten minutes, you'll feel hungry again. So far, I have baked eight loaves. I follow the recipes to a tea. I do not want to stray. Each loaf is so much work. Days of my life. I share images of the process with my friends on social media. And maybe they know these breads are therapy and prayers and maybe they don't. I call the loaves my worry exercises. And by that I mean a way to exorcise worry from my life. And also to practice it. The act of mindful worry. Attention to worry. Worry which used to mean the winnowing away of something physical and later turned interior feels when I'm making bread like a peaceful, intentional process of gnawing through the thicket of uncertainty. I do not know what is on the other side. I do not know when my son will go back to school. I do not know how many people will die. I do not know when I will get another job. I do not know how I will pay for my mortgage or where we will live if we can't afford to live here, in this home we have made, in this community that we've chosen and in which our lives now feel 
trapped in so many physical and figurative ways. But I know I can make bread. Now I follow all the bread people online. They are now my people. There's Seamus Blackley, who invented the Xbox and has a pandemic starter made from 4,500-year-old yeast. He scraped off ancient pots in anthropology museums. There are the strangers around the world who tweet to Blackley and each other using the hashtag Yeastmaster. There's Hala Instagram and Boiled Bagel Instagram and so many sourdough starter Instagrams. There's Baking Twitter, where feminist writer Roxanne Gay turns for tips on how to develop the perfect cookie. And then there's naan made by a friend in India and chapati made by another in Kenya. Our friend in the UK has perfected a sandwich loaf, while in Argentina, friends are baking cake. The pictures shared on social media or in direct messages remind us we're all in this, whatever this is, together. Before it ends, and it will end, I'm planning my next loaf. I start it tonight. Now I know what I'm going to be doing for the next three days. And right now, that's about as much as I can ask for. Thank you for listening to the story. I'm Eliza Anyangwe, Managing Editor of The Correspondent. Members of The Correspondent can now access our journalism in our brand new audio app, available on Android and an iPhone. If you're not yet a member of The Correspondent, this is an excellent moment to join our movement for unbreaking news. Head over to thecorrespondent.com forward slash join and decide whatever you would like to pay for your membership. Happy listening.